Welcome everyone to Mystery AI Hype Theater 3000, where we seek catharsis in this age of AI hype. We find the worst of it and pop it with the sharpest needles we can find. Along the way, we learn to always read the footnotes, and each time we think we've reached peak AI hype, the summit of Bullshit Mountain, we discover there's worse to come. I'm Emily M. Bender, Professor of Linguistics at the University of Washington. And I'm Alex Hanna, Director of Research for the Distributed AI Research Institute. This is episode 18, which we're recording on October 23rd, 2023. And we've got another article from Blaise Arguera y Arcas to pick apart. You might remember Blaze from our first three episodes. He's a vice president over at Google. And he recently wrote a piece with Stanford computer scientist Peter Norvig, proclaiming that, despite the many flaws of our current large language models, artificial general intelligence is already here. As you may have guessed, we disagree wholeheartedly with that claim. But we won't leave it at that. Instead, we're going to dig through this article and see just how they're constructing boulders to add to the mountain of bullshit that is AI hype. So with that, why don't we admire this artifact? Here we go. I'm excited. I'm excited just to, to come back, you know. <laughs> we're returning <laughs> back, to back our roots, to, Alex. Back to our roots. Taking yeah. down stuff that Blaze and uh, Peter Norvig, who is a huge name in artificial intelligence, he with Stuart Russell uh, wrote, you know, one of the most influential textbooks in artificial intelligence. So, yeah, let's just get into it. All right. So paragraph one, artificial general intelligence, AGI, means many different things to different people, but the most important parts of it have already been achieved by the current generation of advanced AI large language models, such as ChatGPT, BARD, Llama, and Claude. All right. We have a link here. What does this point to, Alex? Why can't I see? It goes to our sparks of artificial general intelligence, not ours, but, but Seb Bubeck and Cruz um, sparks of AGI early experience with GPT-4, which we uh, addressed, I think, in episode eight or nine. Uh, but earlier in the podcast, we've addressed this before. Uh, so great article to start with. <laughs> yeah, that that really is is uh, building up the credibility from sentence one. Um, okay. That's these- tone. <laughs> In quotes, frontier models have many flaws. And somebody was just asking the other day, do we know a good critique of sort of the settler colonialist viewpoint behind the phrase frontier model? And yeah, uh, that was that was a, that was a question posed by Dan uh, McQuillan, who's written mm-hmm. a book called Resisting AI. And I know um, Syed uh, Ali has also kind of addressed this. Uh, has done some work on decolonial computing. Mm. I don't know of any, but I mean, this word frontier has lots of connotations, of course. Yeah, yeah. And I would love if anyone, you know, in the comments or listening later and wants to leave us a, a, send us a note, letting us know where that's been written about, would love to hear of it. Okay, so these, in quotes, frontier models have many flaws. They hallucinate scholarly citations and court cases, perpetuate biases from the training data and make simple arithmetic mistakes. Okay, I'm going to be stopping us like every two words here. We've already talked about the problem with hallucinate, but also they hallucinate scholarly citations in court cases, not just of their own accord, right? That happened because somebody asked ChatGPT for a court case, or if you ask it for a citation, if you give it input like that, then it's going to come back with fabricated output. All right. This is what made me really mad. Fixing every flaw, including those often exhibited by humans, would involve, hang on, (laughs) right? Including those often exhibited by humans is basically equating the output of these synthetic text extruding machines with what people do, but just sort of parenthetically, so you can't disagree, but I disagree. Right, right. So it would, and well, I mean, this is an incredible sentence. I mean, all the assumptions that go into it, because the second part of it is, would involve building this artificial superintelligence, which is a whole other project. So not only is it the fact that you know, um, a super intelligence will fix the artificial intelligence hallucinations, but also will fix humans. Really, really, really great stuff here. And and we have this, again, the usual thing about intelligence is this linear scale and humans sit in a certain place. And look, AGI has caught up to us and anything better with the flaws fixed is further down that linear scale. Yeah. The the thing we're going to we're going to get into now and I want to say this. I want to read these next two paragraphs okay. and then I I have a bit of a comment about the methodology here. Um 
So the next two paragraphs say, nonetheless, today's frontier models perform competently, even on novel tasks they were not trained for, crossing a threshold that previous generations of AI and supervised deep learning systems never managed. Decades from now, they will be recognized as the first two examples of AGI, just as the 1945 ENIAC, or um, I think this is how you pronounce the acronym, is now recognized as the first true general purpose electronic computer. And then the next thing is about comparing it with the differential analyzer computer. Um, and to me, this is speaks a little bit to the kind of maneuvers that I think Blaze was really doing in his other article. I went back to that article recently, Emily, for for um for the book that we're writing. Mm-hmm. And um one of the things that I noticed is the now that I know a lot more about the kind of historical um the historical bases of of AI and the in the Dartmouth conference and all that. And the such an interesting thing is that the way that blaze really like uses and abuses the history of computing (laughs) it's like someone went ahead and did a really poor reading of uh the history of computing and then they they um and then they they said oh yeah but we can really tell these just so stories about technology and it's like it's like yeah kind of a skimming of the reading but i don't want to i don't want to like stay there too much like this idea of ENIAC is now being recognized like I don't know if that's necessarily necessarily true um uh but at the same time ENIAC at one point and if there's a certain reading of even AI as being read as was not characterized as programming programming languages were not characterized as such but even programming languages were considered a form of AI because of the symbolic manipulation that they entailed, which is a really weird history. And this is this is something um, uh, Johnny Penn's dissertation, which is uh, inventing intelligence, has like some really interesting parts of that. So yeah, this is a meta comment on just the note, just how to how to tell falsehoods with history that I want to point out. Yeah. So basically, if something that uh, Blaise Agoriakis has written has the word ENIAC in it, um, do a double take and go check that yeah. history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he, this says today's computers far exceed ENIAC's speed, memory, reliability and ease of use. And in the same way, tomorrow's frontier AI will improve on today's. But the key property of generality, it has already been achieved. Oh, dear. All I, right. I'm reminded of a paper we wrote, Alex. Are you? I am. I am very aware. Yeah, the, that's the Grover paper. The Grover paper. Yeah. Um, we we come to that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we we wrote a whole paper um, led by Deb Raji, the incomparable Deb Raji, Deb Raji yes. on um, how uh, the benchmarks that people have put forward have been misconstrued as um, able to test something that that's actually not testable. That is the, the idea that these things could be fully general. And it was inspired by this wonderful children's book, Grover and the Everything in the Whole Wide World Museum, um, which I think yeah. we wore the hats in one episode, didn't we? Um, we did wear the hats. Yeah, the yeah. hats The hats are a classic. I think that we wrote, we wore them for the third episode. It sounds um, about right. So let's get into this. What is general intelligence? Our, okay. So first off, the audacity of posing in a Noema, and this is in Noema magazine, the audacity of posing in a magazine article, what is general intelligence? Uh, already incredible. Um, and so coming into it, uh, you know, they ask early AI systems exhibited artificial narrow intelligence, uh, concentrating on a single task and sometimes performing it at near or above human level. Uh, my uh, sin, which is M-Y-C-I-N, a program developed uh, by Ted Shortleaf at Stanford in the 1970s only diagnosed and recommended treatment for bacterial infections. Cistran, uh, S-Y-S, these are all in caps, T-R-A-N, only did machine translation. IBM's Deep Blue only played chess. I like, I want to stop here because this kind of, this is doing a lot of work already that a lot of these, a lot of these programs were considered to be a sort of general intelligence. So my sin, there's a there's a there's a paper by I believe the paper um, addresses this, but there's a paper by um, David Reeves 
and a number of other people, I think Jeffrey Boker is also on this paper called The Logic of Domains. And it effectively talks a lot about my sin and the kind of epistemology of this, basically how you can sort of bring a computational bearing on any kind of thing. This can be kind of a general tool. And so maybe if my sin even only focused on medical uh, treatments or um, it envisioned itself as a general purpose type of technology that did mimic general intelligence. I want to say the same thing for IBM's Deep Blue. Uh, and I've, I've, I've referenced this paper multiple times on this podcast, but the, um, the Nathan Ensberger paper is chess playing the Drosophilia of, of artificial intelligence, uh, meaning that it's did, even though it only played chess, it quickly became a symbolic stand-in for all intelligence. And so while these things played one things, they did a lot of historical lifting that I think this article is doing. Yeah. Although I want to, I'd be really curious to look at the history of Sistram because, mm -hmm. um, you know, my experience in the field of NLP um, and you know, through the Association for Computational Linguistics, which used to be the Association for Computational Linguistics and Machine Translation, is that there's a whole myriad reasons why you might be interested in building language technology that are not at all involved with or interested in the project of AI. So mm -hmm. yeah. I would be not very surprised if Sistran weren't marketed as AI in its time, um, yeah. especially because yeah. I think Sistran is probably 1980s, which was a mm -hmm. point where you didn't go around, like it didn't make something sound cooler if you called it AI in the 1980s. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, they're probably downplaying that it was AI in the 80s, right? Yeah. And now we've come back historically to reclaim it as AI now that AI is hot again. Yeah. All right. So I need this next sentence here. Later yeah. deep neural network models trained with supervised learning, such as AlexNet and AlphaGo, successfully took on a number of tasks in machine perception and judgment that had long eluded earlier heuristic rule-based or knowledge-based systems. I have two things to say here. One is they're what they're calling AGI, when they say it's already arrived, is large language models. Those are also a supervised learning setup mm -hmm. because their training task is predict the next word or predict a mask word and then compare that to the word that was actually in the text. That is still yeah. supervised learning. They're pretending mm -hmm. that it's not. And mm -hmm. um, machine perception and judgment, um, mm -hmm. that's the bat signal for Weizenbaum, right? <laughs> it is. It is. It's completely the, the Weizenbaum um, perception. I mean, it's it's actually writing but, against Weizenbaum, right? Exactly. No, but because, so, so judgment. Yeah. Machines don't have yeah, judgment. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and this is something that Weizenbaum basically says. You know, like machines don't. I mean, this is his point. Machines don't have judgment. This is a point that's reemphasized by um, Brian Cantwell Smith uh, in in uh, his book, which I'm completely blanking on the name right now. But the sort of idea of he actually distinguishes between judgment and what he calls reckoning. And he says what machines do is reckoning. Mm. And I don't love Cantwell Smith's book, but it it still emphasizes this judgment. Also, yeah. this idea of machine perception is also attributing perception as being a thing where you notice something or you uh, are getting insight. No, AlexNet was an image classification algorithm, yeah. Yeah, right? Alpha it's not... AlphaGo yeah, is a um, game playing system. Game playing, yeah, yeah. So okay. game playing is not is not judgment, right? It is yeah. it is game playing, right? Um, so so okay. So next part, <laughs> and they've got a whole list, and this is kind of the meat of of this. So I'm going to read this uh, uh, kind of. Um, we can go piecemeal, or we can go through it depending on um, uh, how, how angry we get. Uh, <laughs> how how angry we get exactly. Okay, so number one, topics, uh, so, excuse me, prior says, most recently we have seen frontier models that can perform a wide variety of tasks without being explicitly trained on each one. These models have achieved artificial general intelligence in five important ways. Wait, wait, wait. One. They are, yeah. they are asserting this thing that they're arguing for has yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so one, topics. Frontier models are trained on hundreds of gigabytes of text from a wide variety of internet sources, covering any topic that has been written about online. Some are also trained on large and varied collections of audio, video, and other media. Oof, okay. So just because any topic, there's 
any topic that's online, it can cover anything. It is just all knowledgeable. Yeah. So, so uh, yes, it's yeah. true that these things can extrude plausible sounding text on yeah. a very wide variety of topics, but yeah. that's like general mimicry, which isn't yeah. necessarily worth anything. Yeah. And I mean, also that the topics, I know I'm going to, I'm going to go back to, to this on number four, because I think that pairs mm. well, but yeah. Um, to tasks, these models can perform a wide variety of tasks, including answering questions, generating stories, summarizing, transcribing speech, translating language, explaining, making decisions, doing customer support, calling out to other services to take actions, and combining words and images. I mean, this is this is wild because it has this kind of idea of a task. And there's there's something that, I mean, there's a paper here, free paper idea to anybody in the in the chat, but this this notion of task, I think, has this particular sort of epistemic status in AI that a task itself can be bounded and well defined enough that if you have a sufficient number of tasks, that means you have a kind of thing that looks like intelligence, which is very questionable to begin with. Uh, and even the way that they anthropomorphize many of these, like explaining, okay, what's an explanation or making decisions. Okay, um, what is what is the decision and what's the boundary of these decisions, right? Um, and who is empowering the machine to actually have meaningful input into things that require human judgment? So David Schlangen has a great paper where he distinguishes between intentional and extensional definitions of tasks. So the intentional mm -hmm. uh, definition is something like translating language, which is a really vague one. But let's say mm -hmm. you know translating from uh, Japanese to Thai, um, that's a little mm -hmm. bit more specific. Um, mm -hmm. But the extensional definition is done in the data set, right? Here's mm -hmm. the inputs, here's the expected outputs, and then the way we evaluate. And so yeah. in a lot of these cases, the these are these are very brief, very vague intentional descriptions, and they just sort of let you imagine what the extensional description would be or extensional definition would be. Um, mm. And if you look at these, so a bunch of them, answering questions, generating stories, summarizing, explaining, making decisions, customer support, um, those ones are all basically take an input string and provide a likely continuation. So it's actually yeah. all the same task, just interpreted differently depending on how we come at it. Um, and then right. a few of these are in the um, translation sense. So transcribing speech, you can think of as translation from audio to text. Translating language is, you know, text in one language to text in another. Um, calling out to other services to take actions. Mm -mm. Uh, I think what that is, is basically extruding text that happens to look like a command to other services and then being hooked right. up by some external thing to those other services and then combining words and images. Um, that's not even a useful task. I'm not sure what they mean by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm not quite sure. I imagine it, this relates to this next part, modalities. I want to call out this comment in the chat by Korish who says, it's not even the task, it's a digital representation of the task to get it into a computable form, straight cheating. Yeah, mm -hmm, so I mean, mm -hmm. you're not even necessarily, you have to, it has to be computable, it has to be legible. Yeah. Um, okay, so moving on, modalities, the most popular models operate on images and text, but some systems pro also process audio and video, and some are connected to robotic sensors and actuators. By using modality-specific tokenizers and processing raw data streams, Frontier models can, in principle, handle any known sensory or modal, uh, motor modality. Uh, so this is effectively saying, okay, we could we could hook this up and it could be a robot or something of this nature. This is a citation to the future, right? They're not pointing to actually existing yeah, yeah. technology. And they're also not talking about how well it's handling it. Yeah. Right? And I'm looking at the citations and it seemed to just link to other what is this uh, tra to transformer models to um, to basically deal with audio, effectively audio, effectively. I mean, I don't think they really have mentioned um, it allows it to compete competitively subword models on large, on long context language model, achieve state-of-the-art density estimation on an image net and model audio from raw files. Oof, okay. Okay. So, so yeah, this, <laughs> this isn't, this isn't sensory or motor modalities. It's, yeah. you know, digital representations of, yeah, you, this, yeah. this is a system that can take in bytes and output bytes. Sure. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, totally. All right, languages. English is overrepresented in the training 
data of most systems. Holla, bend a rule. But late, large models can converse in dozens of languages and translate between them, even for language pairs that have no example translations in the in the in the training data. Is that actually true? Because I know this is like a, a thing that they had, um, you know, that Sundar Pichai was claiming with. Uh, with with Bard or Lambda or, or one of the Google there was that ones, terrible they, sixty minutes thing where it basically said yeah. yes it, it it learned all of Bengali without any Bengali it's like no it absolutely did not no it had um, it had Bengali yeah yeah I think that it's plausible that if you had some translation data for let's say Bengali but not Bengali English let's say you had you know Bengali mm -hmm. um, to Hindi and Hindi to mm -hmm. English um, that you could get some kind of a translation between English and Bengali out of that um, but again. Yeah how well would it work right right like, to what yeah. quality um but that's not that's not completely implausible and in fact you can get interestingly far with just monolingual data in a bunch of languages mm -hmm. and then a seed lexicon for connecting up the distributions um mm, okay. so it's like non-trivial amounts of stuff comes out would you want to use that in any situation where you care about the accuracy of the output no but yeah. as sort of a no. research question you can do something there yeah yeah absolutely um, I want to get to this last one, and then I really want to get to this this incredible, incredible next set of <laughs> of, of <laughs> paragraphs and claims. Um, instructability: These models are capable of quote in context learning, where they learn from a prompt rather than from training data. In quote few shot learning, a new task is demonstrated with several example input output pairs, and the system then gives outputs for novel inputs. In quote, zero shot learning, a novel task is described, but no examples are given. For example, write a poem about cats in the style of Hemingway, or quote, I don't know if I can pronounce this, equa, equa antonyms are pairs of words that are the opposite of each other and have the same number of letters. What are some equa antonyms? And this one is, you know, I mean, and, and this whole language of few shot learning and zero shot learning is a bit disingenuous, right? Because you still have to have massive pre-training on anything and to give a few things. So if you have errors or you have biases or you have quote unquote hallucinations in your in your pre-training, then that's gonna show up downstream in any of the few shot or zero shot um instances, right? So it's it's a it's a bit of a um a, a misnomer. I know I find the continued discussion of that to be a little disingenuous. Yeah, yeah. And also the whole this is sort of a side point, but the zero shot, few shot stuff has always struck me as just so macho. Like it's yeah, oh, you know. totally, completely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the it's the opposite of of size. It's 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 like um, it's like uh that old uh, TV show, name that tune. You know, oh yeah, <laughs> I could I could name it in three notes. I could name it in no notes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we can. We get so zero shot learning is yeah we'll give you the answer you were thinking of before you even ask the question. <laughs> I know zero shot learning is precognition. You hear it yeah. here fo first, folks. <laughs> you so, heard it here zeros. So, you hear zero. <laughs> oh gosh, we have to zero index it. Um, all right, this is this is um. So they 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 give this short definition. Or not even a, a short definition. I wouldn't call this definitional either, but it would sort of it is sort of a pragmatic scoping of what general intelligence is. So I want to read this, and then I'm going to go off ab about a small rant about general intelligence, okay. <laughs> and, then, and then we should probably get on to the, the how they address the criticisms of 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 AGI. Uh, so they so they said general intelligence in quotes must be thought of in terms of a multi-dimensional scorecard, not a single yes/no proposition. Nevertheless, there is a meaningful discontinuity between narrow and general intelligence. Narrowly intelligent systems typically perform a single or predetermined set of tasks for which they are explicitly trained. Even multitask learning yields only narrow intelligence because the models still operate within the confines of tasks envisioned by the engineers. Indeed, much of the hard engineering work involved in developing narrow AI amounts to curating and labeling task-specific datasets. By contrast, frontier language models can perform competently at pretty much any information task that can be done by humans, can be posed and answered by using natural language as quantifiable performance. The ability to do in-context learning is especially meaningful, uh, meaningful metadata for general AI. In-context learning extends the range of tasks from anything observed in the training corpus to anything that can be described, which is a big upgrade. 
a general AI model can perform the tasks that designers never envision. And here they link to a Quantum Magazine article that is about this kind of um, hyping up this kind of notion of emergent behavior. Uh, and, and it covers some of the research that um, some folks at Stanford and at uh, Anthropic have done. So, okay, so we're getting we're getting here into this like kind of debate around emergence, but I want to go back just to this idea of general intelligence, um, this idea of general intelligence. Oh, and I just realized I threw my phone, I think, because my cat was on it onto this and I had a backup of our audio on my phone. So <laughs> sorry, sorry, Christy, our producer, but general intelligence, I mean, they don't get into it here. Um but this idea of general intelligence has this long, sordid history, right? And I, I think we might have hinted at it on the on the pod before. But the idea of general intelligence as being this thing, this kind of measurable single proposition, which has this history in in, in IQ tests um, by by Spearman and his concept of G, uh, the concept that and and effectively that these things can are ingrained differences. They 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 do this huge sidestepping of discussing any of that, and a little bit by saying, well, it's not a single yes no. Uh, instead, we need to give it a scorecard, and also uh, 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 this thing that should be considered to be general intelligence is this question of emergence, um, which is, yeah, that's incredibly questionable. Yeah, yeah. and I, I mean, it's it's it, yeah. Go ahead. And so, I mean, it's, yeah, sorry. I have more to say on it, but I want to, I, that was my pause yeah. to let you jump All in. All right. So the first <laughs> sentence here, general intelligence must be thought of in terms of a multidimensional scorecard, not a single yes, no proposition. I said, but but defined how? Like as you said, they're, they're not actually defining it. Um, yeah. They're contrasting it to narrow intelligence, which is, or narrowly intelligent, no, narrowly functional systems, right? I think it makes a whole lot more yeah. sense to talk about functionality. But I was particularly angry at this last sentence. Indeed, much of the hard engineering work involved in developing narrow AI amounts to curating and labeling task-specific data sets. And I was angry about this because that is hard work and it is skilled work and it is yeah. never valorized. Yeah. And so now yeah, when they're saying, exactly. well, that's unimportant because it's just for narrow AI, now they're going to valorize it. Like, yeah, you know? yeah. Sure. Yeah, and that, I mean that's that's such a that's such a good point, right? And that's also untrue, right? Because so much of the the RLHF work, the red teaming work, the um, the content moderation still falls on those same people doing you know that did all that hard creating and labeling, right? It's yeah. also really interesting on how they frame it as hard engineering work too, because. This this kind of excuse me this kind of strikes back to how computing work became masculinized, uh, which which actually they they, they get into <laughs> they they do get into in the article, but you know because but it but and they don't they don't refer to anybody who's done that important work like like um 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 Jane Abate or um which I think I referred yeah. I referred to in the in the first uh one of the first podcasts that we did. And also Nathan Ensmerger's book, The Computer Boys Take Over. And so, you know, they so they're saying, but now it's engineering work. So yeah, thanks for calling that out. That's that's really something. And so the, the other thing that I wanted to say was this this next little bit here, right? By contrast, frontier language models can perform competently at pretty much any information task that can be done by humans, can be posed and answered using natural language, and has quantifiable performance. In other words, if you are willing to take the output text extruded by these machines as the answer to what you're looking for, and you can shape the question so that you can make sense of it that way, then they can do it. In other words, yeah. it's all on the people using it and not on the machine, but they just aren't mm -hmm. recognizing their own sense-making capability in here. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, <laughs> so we got about like, so now, now we've, we've, <laughs> we as we did in the first Blaze article where it took us three episodes to get through we're only about <laughs> one page through this and and there's still there's a lot the, the four the four criticisms so maybe yeah. in a, the next 15 minutes we can <laughs> do a skim on it yeah so the next part says so why the reluctance to acknowledge agi frontier models have achieved a significant level of general intelligence according to the everyday meanings of those two words okay that's already doing a ton of work um 
And yet most commenters have been reluctant to say so far, uh, so for, to say so, I guess that's, that's a typo. So far, it seems to us, um, so, no, sorry, that's not yeah. a typo, excuse me. To say so <laughs> for, it seems to us four main reasons. One, a healthy skepticism about the metrics for AGI. Two, an ideological commitment to alternative AI theories or techniques. Three, a devotion to human or biological exceptionalism. And four, a concern about the economic imp- implications of AGI. Okay. okay. I got to say something uh, before we get into any of these. Though. Yeah, do okay. it. Do it. So, do it. Do it. So as you say, um, the sort of appealing to the everyday meanings of general intelligence is, is a total cop out. But also mm-hmm. this question, why the reluctance to acknowledge AGI is presupposing the existence of AGI. They're basically saying yeah. it exists. Why are people not doing it? And then yeah. they basically say, well, here's the possible reasons. And none of them yeah. are actually it's bullshit. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's, it's they can't um, admit that. It is, it is, is also doing, I mean, and the Stanford people have done a bit of an end run about this. Already we're talking about frontier models. I mean, which is a term that they came up with as this coalition. There's this center for frontier models, whatever. The same with foundation models, which I guess we've already given up on. And no, I mean, no, I still, I, I still object when I see it. <laughs> yeah, well, no, term. I mean, I, no, I, I object too. I'm saying they've <laughs> given up on it, right? And no. I mean, and I just think, I mean, you can, you know, you can, you can call, you know, you, well, I don't want to be too uh, vulgar on the podcast, but you can call a a pig a pig, right? It's, uh, or you can call a pig a. Um, I don't want to be offensive to pigs here. You can, yeah, you can, I think we got to keep moving, uh, Alex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I to not be offensive. Um, yeah. And also, I don't think we have time for Suleiman's stupid um, raise money test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's. So the metrics, so the metrics test, I mean, they, they're effectively going and, 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 and saying, like, let's, let's find out how to do metrics, um, you know, and, and effectively they're going into and saying, like, well, what are, what are we doing here? Um, um, you know, and they're they they are to some degree acknowledging the kind of problem with metrics, um, but also saying that this is you know we are solving other metrics. So they point to Percy Lang's work on Helm. If you remember our uh, podcast with uh, Jeremy Khan, episode uh, we seven. addressed episode yeah episode seven. Yeah. We addressed that. You addressed the kind of moving standard. Of, of of these test suites and the problem with those right um and but that's not even and so even if we object to metrics we can't even really agree on metrics <laughs> right um and yeah and, and now and, we're back to grover yeah. right they're they're yeah, they're saying yeah, yeah. you know if we say well, that metric's not good then we'll say okay well what's the metric that tests for general intelligence like well you can't test the everything machine it's by definition yeah. untestable and number two it's not the job of the critics saying, hey, your test isn't working, your claims are false, to come up with yeah. the alternative test, because we're not trying to build the thing. The burden of yeah. proof lies with the people making the extraordinary claims. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I was mad at this so, paragraph. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, I agree, right? It's also important. Well, in re- reading this paragraph, it is important. Oh, sorry, you, you were reading yeah. it. Go ahead. <laughs> it is also important not to confuse linguistic fluency with intelligence. Yes, absolutely true. Um, uh-huh. and yet they somehow don't recognize that they're being fooled in the same way. Um, yeah. and then they say, we call this the Chauncey Gardner effect after the hero and being there. Chauncey is taken very seriously solely because he looks like someone who should be taken seriously. It's like, you couldn't cite any of the people who've already been talking about this. <laughs> no, they gotta, they gotta, they gotta claim some new words. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. I think we're going to move on from metrics. So, yeah. So going to alternative theories. So, so the prehistory of AGI includes many competing theories. Here they go after good old fashioned AI or GoFi. The GoFi credo, drawing from a line back from Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, the 17th century German mathematician, is exemplified by Alan Newell and Herman Simon's physical symbol um, system hypothesis, which holds that intelligence can be expressed in terms of calculus, wherein symbols represent ideas and thinking consisting of symbol manipulation according to the rules of logic. 
Um, and it's and so then they they go into sort of GoFi and why people are are more invested in kind of a symbolic, um, kind of a symbolic reasoning. Um, and so they you know they talk about, um, um, and then and they talk about Chomsky's criticism. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you yeah. I yeah. want you to weigh here and because you're you're highlighting here. I'm highlighting something, uh, Emily, yeah. And 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 it's and and yeah, go into it. So the thing that got me here is they say that's why for decades concerted efforts to bring together computer programming and linguistics failed to produce anything resembling AGI. It's like actually plenty of people were bringing together computer programming and linguistics to build language technology with zero interest in AGI. Yeah, right? like you yeah. cannot paint all of that work as if it were a failed attempt to do the thing that you want. That's just I also think it's very interesting that this is kind of like the kind of um referent here to Newell and, and Newell and Simon here kind of as they wanted to effectively say that we could you know establish everything as a predicate calculus um this is another thing I kind of got from Johnny Penn's dissertation which is effectively this effort wasn't necessarily like, focused as I understood this and if anyone has any more knowledge of this history hit me up in the comments but it wasn't necessarily aimed at doing this as as part of an ideological commitment but a lot of it was methods of convenience as if they got basically access to uh Bertrand Russell's um, um Precipita I'm not saying this right Precipita Mathematica and effectively we're saying okay we can try to prove some of these axioms in here and if we can do this this is kind of like an effective test of this that it proved to be not really able to do so. So I think it's less of a less of an ideological commitment that they like to say. Um, although we might, you know, they they do make reference to um Gary Marcus, who may be more committed to such a thing. Um, but I, you know, it's 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 such a it's such a weird kind of thing that people have this kind of ideological commitment to uh GoFi rather than to uh kind of neural network architecture. Yeah, I'm just scrolling down here to try to get to, um, because we, we so there's Gary Marcus. We've got to keep moving. Um, wait, I've, I've got this printed out in front of me too. Um, yeah. So, ah, um, this one irritated me. As AI critics yeah. work to devise new tests on which current models still perform poorly, they are doing useful work. Yes, yes, keep it up, AI critic. You're doing useful work. Um, although given the increasing speed with which newer, larger models are surmounting these hurdles, it might be wise to hold off for a few weeks before, once again, rushing to claim that AI is, in quotes, hype. <laughs> I was just like, yeah. first of all, nobody is saying that AI is hype. We're saying that your claims of AI are hype. And yeah. secondly, um, they're basically saying all those times in the past where we failed, okay, we failed, but the next time, the, the next time we're getting it right, well, then we've really built AI. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and just... this this is what yeah. I think. This is what I think. I, I sent this to you in the chat and in, in a chat, Emily. But yeah. I think this we could call this the hyper's horizon. It's always five years off, right? Yeah. And I, I want there's one thing I want to pick up back here, and then I'm going to let you say where we need to go next. Um, yeah. <laughs> they say without explicit symbols, according to these critics, a merely learned statistical approach cannot produce true understanding. It's telling to me they don't actually take on Bender and Kohler 2020. We aren't saying without explicit yeah. symbols. We're saying if the input is only form, you can't learn meaning. But they clearly mm. haven't read that paper, haven't understood it. Well, they, not... link, they they actually link to it. They the, do? Where? They are, pri they are linked to it prior to the uh, block quote. Uh, the There's the paragraph on Chomsky, but yeah, especially if they're trained purely on language. Hey, look, that's us. But purely on language is wrong. It's purely on mm -hmm. linguistic form. Mm -hmm. um, so they haven't understood. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, All right. Let's, uh, uh, there's so, so much let's go down to, give, yeah. <laughs> let's go down to human or biological exceptionalism. This is basically saying, okay, um, you know, uh, some people are not willing to accept any empirical evidence of AGI. Uh, first off, you know, okay, empirical evidence of AGI is, is, is not, is not, uh, it's not a thing. Um, but the sort of thing that they, they go into is they need to argue that, you know, these people need to argue that humans are special or humans are, uh, exceptional. Um, and so, um, and so then they, they, they go down and say, you know, we need to say that these things are beyond tools. So they they go through, 
Mustafa Suleiman, which I guess in his book says that we need to think about artificial capable intelligence, which is a purely capitalist enterprise. Uh, you can turn $100,000 into a million dollars. Incredible. I love this as a measure of intelligence. Um, uh, I, I say this with such dripping sarcasm. Um, but but Alex, so, like, you know, the more millions you have, obviously, the more intelligent you are. Like, that's how it works, right? Yeah, that's right. We we are doing, we're just drawing a line from money to intelligence. Wonderful. Yeah. I love, I love it. Incredible. Um, so they go down and say, um, so they, they end up here, they kind of hem and haw a lot on here. And, and what they're trying to do, and and I I kind of want to applaud them on here because they make the distinction between consciousness and intelligence. Um, so they say we we have no idea how to measure, uh, verify, or falsify the presence of consciousness and intelligence system. We could ask it, but we may may or may not believe its response. And this is uh, harks back to Blaze's initial uh, impetus for writing the article, which is um, basically dogging on Blake Lamone who's fired from Google uh, for, for effectively, you know, saying AI was sentient, but then, uh, or, uh, but then leaking co company uh, secrets. Uh, believers in AI sentience will uh, accept the positive response, while non-believers will say it's merely parroting, a uh, little subtweeting of y'all, uh, or they're philosophical zombies. Um, and then, and then, um, and then what they kind of go down and say is, is sort of, um, they, they sort of flip this here. They say to claim a priori that non-biological systems simply can't be intelligence or conscious because they're, quote, just algorithms, for example, seems arbitrary, rooted in untestable spiritual beliefs. So they're making the claim that if you were saying that they're un, not intelligence or conscious, this is just as a spiritual belief, um, which, I mean, is there, is that is that symmetric there? Um, it's, it's just like, it's, 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 they, they, and and what I really in this, it's I want to take this as a rhetorical move because it's effectively like, you know, there's a move that I think a lot of people, there's a trend that a lot of people in let's say, long termism and others and the people who build like believe in super intelligence seem to do, which is saying, well maybe humans aren't at they they say well maybe humans aren't as exceptional. Um, but they they make a bit of an appeal to like an environmentalist or like a, a, a kind of a a green kind of thing. Like it's just and that like really irks me because you're saying like, well, one, these things are not climate friendly to begin with, right? So like, how dare you even put it in the same camp? Two, it's okay to unsettle humanness, and if you actually listen to people who, you know, like uh, people like indigenous scholars and and indigenous elders yeah actually that's that's actually not a bad sort of thing building building a quote-unquote agi is is not it though <laughs> you are not decentering the, the the human in a way that is actually uh, uh kind of uh writing our relationship with the earth in any kind of meaningful way and that just that's a thing that really grinds my gears. Yeah. I just want to put in a plug for the All My Relations podcast, which is a wonderful podcast by two um, North American indigenous scholars. And mm -hmm. they've got so much to say that's that's really, really fruitful about being in relationship, you know, with mm -hmm. the planet, which is yeah. not this. And to my knowledge, they haven't taken on AI, but it's also like not what they're mm -hmm. talking about. Um, yeah. 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 Alex, we have to get to the economic implications. Uh, I'm, okay. I'm biting okay. my tongue, so I want to hear what you have to say about this. So let, let me read that first paragraph so just so that yeah. you can go off on it, all right? Yeah. Arguments about intelligence and agency readily shade into questions about rights, status, power, and class relations, in short, political economy. Since the Industrial Revolution, tasks deemed rote or repetitive have often been performed by low-paid workers while programming, in the beginning considered women's work, rose in intellectual and financial status only when it became male-dominated in the 1970s. Yet ironically, while playing chess and solving problems in integral calculus turn out to be easy even for GoFi, manual labor remains a major challenge even for today's most sophisticated AIs. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is this is very this is i mean first off the separation between mental and manual labor is a bit artificial right i mean any kind of manual labor uh and en entails a very real kind of 
embodied knowledge and work. So that's already that's already division. I I I refuse. The thing that really got me here uh, was the the second graph in the section, which was um, talking about the mid mid fifties in the Dartmouth conference, and they say at the time most Americans were optimistic about technological progress. The quote Great Compression was underway an era in which the economic gains achieved by rapidly advancing technology were redistributed broadly, albeit certainly not equitably, especially with regards to race and gender. <laughs> Despite the looming threat of the Cold War for the majority of people, the future looked brighter than the past. And it's just like 1950s, what else was happening? Oh, right, the civil rights movement. And, the <laughs> like, and you know, and... You know this 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 post-war era itself, which was a bit exceptional in sort of the history of 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 uh, of the U.S. This kind of era of great society, and it's sort of so um, yeah, it's it's so um, colorblind not to see that the way that these were drastically awful times, a, a time of Jim Crow segregation, a time of increasing and very marginal movement, and wasn't but for a mass movement that could even move on that at all. And so, yeah, I mean, and it's, and so then they effectively then, and I want to take this because I want to include this, they basically are like, at the next paragraph, they say that today that restricted pump has been thrown in reverse. Okay, I and I would say that's uh, a revisionist reading. It's not a reverse. Actually, that's continuing what we've had. The the poor are getting poorer, and the rich are getting richer, especially in the global north. When character, where AI is characterized as not neither artificial nor intelligent, which is uh, and they cite to Kate Crawford's uh, Atlas of AI book, but merely a repackaging of human intelligence. It is hard not to read this critique through a lens of economic threat and security. And I'm like, okay, yeah, actually, don't disagree. Actually, yeah, there's this Matthew effect, and it yeah. is a con continuity from a mid fifties, uh, uh, vision. Uh, and so they conclude by saying, you know, AGI needs to be asked who benefits, who is harmed, who, how can we maximize benefits and minimize harm? And how can we do this fairly and equitably? And we would say definitively don't build AGI. It is not anything that is, uh, fruitful for human flourishing. And, and I use this in a way that is not referring to the type of, uh, effective <laughs> algorithms, human, uh, effective, uh, altruist human flourishing, but more in the uh, uh, envisioning real utopias, human flourishing that Eric Olin Wright and other people use this. But it's just a really infuriating end of this in which they say, this is an objection and we agree and we should just do better. Okay, great. Right. And, but they also say the much needed ought debates are best carried out honestly. And if we don't separate what the uh, debates about what it should be and what it is, then we're going to be muddying the waters. And I'm like, no, because it isn't. It doesn't exist. And if you're making these yeah. claims that it does exist and that it's worth trying to pursue and that it's going to have all these magical properties, that's muddying the waters of the ought debates. Um, yeah. And and also, when they say it is hard not to read this critique through the lens of economic threat and insecurity, I think that's an attempt to discredit the critique. Um, it. I, I read I this <laughs> twice, and it's and it's and it's. I feel like it's a tacit agreement with the critique and then, but then say, we need to, we need to envision an a AGI that works for all of us. It is, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. All right, Alex, we have only 10 minutes left. So I'm oh, going to take us to fresh AI hell and your prompt this week is you're a demon who's late for their train to fresh AI hell. And you're rushing okay. along. Got to get there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, stop. Stop. Ah. Oh, holy crap. Oh, stop it. Stop it. Ah, no, I'm going to be late on the job. Oh, my gosh. Last time, Lucifer was so mad. I oh, I didn't pull out enough teeth. Oh, I'm just down here torturing Norbert uh, uh, Wiener. And, and was it Norbert Wiener, the, the cybernetics guy? Sorry. That's all I got. No. All right. Let's move on. <laughs> Oh man, that was fun. Okay, so we have lots of fresh AI help. We're gonna do this rapid fire. 
Uh, from Meredith Whitaker, a tweet, um, disturbing to see this offered by a reputable J school and what's being offered is from the uh, UT Austin Knight Center for Journalism in the Americas, a post saying generative AI is here to stay and will only improve and expand. It's a good idea to get in now and learn as it develops. Um, and then uh, below it says nearly 7,000 students from 147 countries already enrolled in an online course on AI and newsrooms. And there's suggestions for how this can be used to help journalists transcription, sorting disparate data, producing newsletters, and scheduling social media. Um, it is really scary to see a J school saying, sure, you can use Gen I, synthetic text, to write your newsletters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oof, okay. yeah, that's a, that's a big wolf moment there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, Will Ahmed tweets, breaking, we have partnered with at OpenAI to launch Whoop Coach today, the most advanced generative AI feature to ever be released by a wearable. Members can now ask at Whoop anything about their data and receive instant feedback. So this is a system for um, doing personal coaching, I guess. And they're just, they just put GPT-4 inside of it. <laughs> yeah. Is it, is it on the, the watch or something? And I guess it's, and it's, yeah. you know, I'm here and 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 we need to uh, work out if I'm stuck in traffic and they've got this very flashy video uh, with things that say um, you could go through all the search or you could go through Roop to figure it out. Uh, Fun stuff. So so my tweet was GPT-4 is inside this thing. So are we talking days, hours or minutes before we see the first reports of physically dangerous advice coming out of it? And of course, I got people saying, well, you can find this dan physically dangerous advice on the Internet all the time. Yeah. yeah. Ah, okay. Um, how about you do this one? Yeah. So this is a um, a toot by Shannon Skinner, uh, in which they uh, which she says Cigna, a U.S. health insurance provider, is being sued for the second time this year for using automated intelligence to deny medical care claims so they don't have to pay for them. The quote. Cigna's algorithmic review process trades patient care for profit, allowing the provider to eliminate the cost of necessary review by doctors and qualified professionals, and instead rely on impersonal, impersonal illegal review by almost an almost completely automated algorithm. And then Cigna's defense, they claim that because the review takes place after the patients have received treatment, it does not result in any denials of care. Ooh, no one said you denied care, Cigna, you denied payment for care. Hey, Cigna, maybe you need to be reminded that the service you sell is paying for care. Yeah, this is a nightmare. I mean, the kind of idea of I mean, getting things processed by your insurance to begin with is terrible. Um, and anyone who's had to deal with any kind of um, kind of, I, I, I wanted to say rare exceptional condition or medical condition, but it's really many medical conditions on this. Yeah. Um, and uh, trying to be on the phone with insurance for hours and trying to resolve this is a nightmare. Imagine being on the phone or writing a report and getting an automated rejection. Yeah. Just nightmare oh, conditions. So terrible. So, so terrible. I'm actually going to skip ahead to this one because it's also medical care. The Madrid Health Service, a pioneer in applying generative artificial intelligence to improve diagnosis for patients with rare diseases. This is, by the way, a Microsoft press release. And what's happened is they have, they're piloting, and as I understand it, with actual patients, um, mm -hmm. a system where GPT-4 is meant to be helping the physicians diagnose rare diseases. Has this been tested through a medical trial? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. It is no. really, really frustrating. And Microsoft says, Madrid Health Service is a pioneer for doing this. Um, I mean, it's especially scary because it's rare diseases, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, and and that's just, we don't know what's in the training data. We don't know how rare diseases typically get diagnosed. And um, also when you're a patient coming in with a disease, you don't know that it's a rare disease initially, yeah. right? <laughs> also um, true. Yeah. And, you know, we've got to go through all the stuff about false positives, false negatives. How does it affect people? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. All right. Um, I'm going to keep us going. <laughs> uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> you want to do this one? Yeah, do it. Yeah, okay. yeah. So this is a tweet by our friend, Mustafa Seliman, not actually our friend. Um, and he says, AI for science is already here. 20% of researchers say they use LLMs as a scientific research, uh, scientific search engine or for brainstorming or literature reviews or even to help write manuscripts. This is an awesome paper published in Nature. Um, and they have a bar graph 
Um, the kinds of things that they do is for creative fun, not related to my research, 40% to help write code, about 33% to brainstorm research ideas. And Emily is circling to conduct literature reviews in particular. Um, uh. That hangs around 23%. And if y'all remember Galactica, uh, yeah. <laughs> famous for uh, making up citations, incredible yeah. stuff. All right. I'm going to keep us moving, though, because we could wallow yeah. in that for a while. We don't totally. have time. Um, okay. Once again, the idea that AI is going to be useful for mental health therapy. So Lillian Wang says, just had a quite emotional personal conversation with ChatGPT in voice mode, talking about stress, work-life balance. Interestingly, I felt heard and warm. Never tried therapy before, but this is probably it. Try it, especially if you usually just use it as a productivity tool. And then that's quote tweeted by Ilya Sutskever. In the future, once the robustness of our models will exceed some threshold, we will have wildly effective and dirt cheap AI therapy. Will lead to a radical improvement in people's experience of life. One of the applications I'm most eagerly awaiting. No, oh, this one, yeah, this one's <laughs> a high, this one's been on the hyper's horizon for uh, yeah. for over uh, seventy years now. Mm. Uh, in in uh, Weizenbaum's Computer Power and Human Reason, he talks about how psychologists were saying this about Eliza. Yeah, that Eliza, the chatbot. And he cites, talks about uh, basically giving the program to his secretary and the secretary spent many, you know, a bunch of time with it and uh, basically telling it her life. Um, and then many popular psychologists were saying, oh, we could provide very cheap therapy if we had this. 70 years later, we still don't have cheap therapy. Right, because we you have, can't. Yeah, right? we still have an incredibly backed up mental health system with incredible burnout from many, many mental health professionals, especially after COVID. Yeah. All right. Um, we are not getting through all these, but six no. tenets of post-plagiarism, <laughs> writing in the age of artificial intelligence. This is a tweet from Dr. Selene, Dr. Sarah Elaine Eaton, um, where she seems to be claiming that because there is now synthetic media machines, we have to rethink how we think about plagiarism. And I just want to bring up one of the things here in this graphic. Historical definitions of plagiarism no longer apply. Um, and then it's expanded as historical definitions of plagiarism will not be rewritten because of artificial intelligence. They will be transcended. Policy definitions Gosh. can and must adapt. And it's like the, the defeatism here. It's like, no, we actually can resist this stuff. And like, yeah. you know, we don't yeah. just have to roll over like that. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a rough one. Yeah. Uh, this this one is a tweet from Luke Goldstein. It says this is wild. Sarah Ziff from the Models Alliance, and mind you, this is not an alliance of of comp of statistical models. It is speaking about <laughs> clothing models and supermodels, etc. Is speaking at FTC forum, and this was an FD, a forum that the FTC did about creative fields, which is great. I haven't watched it, but it's on my list. Um, and apparently modeling agencies, which rely almost entirely on independent contractors, have been using AI modeling deepfakes to meet, quote, diversity goals instead of just actually paying real models. Oh, so this is incredibly trash. So just making up uh, black and brown models rather than getting actual models. Truly, truly wild stuff. Yeah. And I think that's all we have time for this time. So we will yeah. um, have lots of fresh AI help for our upcoming episodes, um, uh, which should be coming pretty fast and furious for a little while, which is exciting. And maybe one day we will be on top of the AI hell. Um, but I do want to raise up something that Wise Woman For Real has put in the chat. Resisting seems so hard as if one is alone out there. Even postdocs talk about finally having help with the, quote, boring literature reviews. I just want to say, please don't feel alone. That's part of our purpose with this podcast. And we love the community that's being built up around it. Um, it's basically, hopefully, a space to feel like you're not the only one who's saying, what are people thinking? Yeah, absolutely. That's it for this week. Our theme song is by Toby Menon. Graphic design by Naomi Pleasure Park. Production by Christy Taylor. And thanks, as always, to the Distributed AI Research Institute. If you like this show, you can support us by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and by donating to DARE at dare-institute.org. That's D-A-I-R-institute.org. 
find us and all our past episodes on PeerTube and wherever you get your podcasts. You can watch and comment on the show while it's happening live on our Twitch stream. That's twitch.tv slash dare underscore institute. Again, that's D-A-I-R underscore institute. I'm Emily M. Bender. And I'm Alex Hanna. Stay out of AI hell, y'all.